This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a streaming service that offers thousands of lectures in hundreds of fields, ranging from engineering to martial arts to photography and so much more. They're offering our listeners a free full month of unlimited access if you visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. While you're there, we recommend checking out the course Introduction to Astrophysics. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably for one free full month of unlimited access. Probably Science. Hello and welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. Matt is currently abroad, but I didn't want that to stop us from putting together a show, especially in light of what those of us in Southern California just went through last week that was pretty sobering. We've talked a lot in this podcast about our earthquake preparedness or lack thereof, and I thought this is a great time to uh, bring on science reporter for KPCC, Jacob Margolis, who also hosts the podcast, The Big One, which takes a look at what would happen in a hypothetical situation where we do have a large-scale earthquake centered in the Los Angeles area. This episode provides a lot of useful information for those of us who live near earthquake-prone areas or just curious about the subject. So enjoy. I am here with KPCC science reporter, Jacob Margolis. Jacob, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I wish that the occasion weren't what it was for our our crossing paths, but um, it's a great time for us to get listeners up to speed on something that we all should be more prepared for, which is, of course, the two pretty big earthquakes that happened within the last seven days here. Yeah, pretty, it, it was it was surprising. Obviously, we you can't predict an earthquake is coming. You could do probability, but uh, you don't know exactly when it's going to hit, and it definitely pun intended, shook things up for us at our house, and no pun intended uh, in terms of how devastating it was for some other people's lives, because obviously it was very hard for them. We have to recognize that as well. Right. Yeah, it's easy here in LA when things just shook a bit to forget that uh, it was was the biggest of the, of the two, a 7.1 up at Ridgecrest? Yeah, and, peop- and people's lives have been upended up there. I mean, luckily for uh luckily for where the quake we're lucky in in that where the quake hit it wasn't that populated but it's clearly been a struggle for some of the folks that do live up there especially folks near the military base and there's a lot of military families over there and Mm -hmm. so i think they're still they're recovering and the state is bringing in resources and federal resources as well to help them recover that is great yeah And, and it was not along the san andreas fault correct no it was along the um the Little Lake Fault Zone, which is right at the end of the uh, Eastern California Shear Zone. So it's not on the San Andreas Fault. It's actually about 150 miles or so inland from there because San Andreas is kind of close to the coast in that area. Um, And it's in the middle of the Mojave in the Little Lake Fault Zone, Mm -hmm. which is in the Eastern California shear zone, which if you look at a fault map of that area, it's actually really interesting. It's not like one or two really long faults. It's almost like tiny little pieces of spaghetti down on a map and uh, that that are kind of, we don't understand very well. And the cool thing about this, and there have been geologists and seismologists and geophysicists out there like jamming with all their equipment and having a good time and, and rushing around, um, so that they could better understand this place because really they haven't, uh, it hasn't, my understanding, I've been told by a couple of USGS people that it's been quite a while since we've 
they've really taken the time to look in this spot. And that's because it's not necessarily the most active, right? I mean, the San Andreas is super well studied because it's very active. It's a big risk for California. But there are a lot of other faults in in California that are maybe less active that uh, maybe we just don't know enough about because we haven't seen them go off yet. So this one's activity is now, has it has it died down after all the aftershocks from those two quakes last week? Yeah, so over time you get uh, fewer and fewer aftershocks after a major quake. And what you're going to have is the probability is actually going to go down of another major kind of follow up. So on, you know, the quake hit on July 4th, the 6.4, and they thought that was the main shock. And what happens after a quake like that is that USGS puts out probabilities using their algorithms that I'm sure they draw in decades and decades of research to, to figure out. And they had put something over a magnitude seven uh, as of Friday night at less than 1%. And we were hit with less than that 1%. We were hit with that magnitude seven. I so, wow. yeah, it was really interesting. And the, what is even more interesting is that the fault actually re-ruptured. So the 6.4 was kind of a right, it was like two faults uh, in this zone and that are at like a right angle to one another. And the bottom uh the bottom part of that right angle, imagine an L, uh, mm. the bottom part of that did not do anything uh, on the big, as far as I know, when the 7.1 hit, but the up and down, north-south kind of facing one roughly uh, did actually re-rupture. And so it exploded from what was a 6.4 before to all of a sudden it's like a 7.1. And then it turns out the 6.4 was a foreshock um, to the main event, which was a 7.1. And I guess, is everything just referred to as a foreshock once a bigger one follows it? If a, if a bigger one happens this week, will those both be considered? I think there's stuff, stuff. I think I think they could say pre-shock and foreshock. And I heard Lucy Jones talking about this, Dr. Seismologist Lucy Jones, uh, Seismologist Dr. Lucy Jones talking about this a bit during the press conference about kind of the terminology between pre-shock and foreshock and stuff. And I, I'm, I'm a little uncertain about that, but I do know that they were immediately reclassified the 6.4 as a four shock um instead of instead of the main shock uh and then you know we had the big one that was that happened even though it was less than one percent of a chance that it, that it would happen yeah i thought i'd heard after the friday quake that there was still something like a 20 to 30 percent chance of something in the six to seven magnitude again is that not true or was that a short-term probability so the probabilities change the further away we get from the main event. Um, <clears throat> they go down. And so the likelihood of a major quake happening on that same fault goes down. That said, there is always a possibility that it's going to happen because it's not like when uh, stress is released on a fault that it never builds up again or that maybe we just don't know. I don't I actually don't know that. But in general, I guess the thing that I have uh, assumed to be the case, and I'm in no way knowledgeable in this field, is that there are these sort of like potentials that build up along fault lines. And the longer it's been in an area without one, that suddenly becomes a higher risk area. Is that is there something to that kind of logic or, or not? The probability increases over time. Yeah. Uh, but not for, I you know, I don't know like what the tipping point for say like, so if there's a less than 1% chance 
that this fault was going to slip and create a 7.1. What, at what point does the probability of a 7.1 start to pick up again? Mm-hmm. Because right now on the southern part of the San Andreas, and that's a good question. I don't know. I don't really know. And I bet it is very dependent on the fault. And I bet it's very dependent on the faults around that fault. <laughs> and right. I bet it's very complicated. Uh, but like, for instance, the San, Southern San Andreas or something like a 51 or 52 or something, roughly percent chance that over the next 30 years, uh, it'll rupture. In general, though, are, is the San Andreas fault now at a higher risk having had these quakes happen at a nearby fault? No. As far as we know, as far as I've heard, as far as any scientists have figured out so far, uh, this has not at all influenced the San Andreas fault. It's very far from the San Andreas that said, if you want to play out a fun scenario, um, when I say fun, I'm kind of being sure. so, so yeah. a little facetious. Um, this, what was interesting about this series of quakes is that they actually broke pretty close to the Garlock Fault. And the Garlock Fault is a fault that runs about 180 miles and the Garlock Fault is is fairly long. It bisects California from about the Mojave over to the San Andreas, and it connects with the San Andreas. And according to James Dolan over at USC, he said, he told us on KPCC that um, the San Andreas is sympathetic to the Garlock. The Garlock hasn't gone off in a very, very long time. And so we don't know if maybe the Garlock goes off, if it'll influence the San Andreas on the other end. There's been no indication yet that these earthquakes here in Ridgecrest have at all influenced the Garlock. And so I think people are watching for that. And I've seen it. I I just read a paper, like a quick kind of commentary that was written by some uh, scientists. And they were talking about this kind of idea, like we're we're waiting, kind of seeing like maybe the Garlock will be influenced. Um, And if it is, that'll be really super interesting. And that could theoretically increase the odds of a San Andreas quake, although that has absolutely not been seen. And I do not want anybody to take away uh, (laughs) the, the idea that there's an increased risk because of these quakes. So we're not living in, in a state of uh, hypervigilance right now, except that we were just reminded that these things can happen at any time and we should all take stock of what preparation we're doing. Yeah, it could happen at any time. I mean, literally while we're recording this podcast, I mean, you could have a major earthquake happen. And yeah. uh, I mean, you, you just would not be able to predict that. So if you feel like you can submit to your complacency uh, <laughs> when it comes to major quakes, I say you are wrong and you need to go get your uh, quake kits ready and your supplies ready and make sure that they're ready at all times. I I know that we, I and my co-host have, have talked about this on our podcast in the past that we should have done this a long time ago and I have next to nothing. And then I also, when the second quake struck, my only memory of what to do was stand in a doorway. And uh, then I was like, wait, is that also an old wives tale or is that what I should have been doing? So it's good, I guess, that we refresh our listeners also on what the immediate things to do are when you are inside and one of these hits. Yeah, so duck cover and hold on is the number one rule. If you can get under a desk, if you can shield your head and your neck from anything, uh, people have been saved many times by covering themselves with some sort of sturdy structure. Uh, If you can't do that, for instance, when the quake hit on... Uh, Friday night, the 7.1, it was enough to really shake our house here in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And my wife and I, you know, it's kind of end of the day, you're sitting on your bed, you're kind of checking your phones. And we were on our bed, our kid was in his crib in the other bedroom. 
and um, he started crying. Everything was shaking. And my wife was like, I think I should go get him. And I was like, well, like we, we shouldn't get up. We should ride this out. Like everything is safe around us. And that's because we've prepped our room. We prepped our kid's room, uh, strapped everything down, made sure there's nothing hanging over anyone so that, mm. you know, if the ground does shake and stuff kind of does go awry, that we'll be able to hunker down almost no matter where we are. And we and we will be safe. And so there's a way to kind of prep this space around you to ensure that that you'll be OK or hopefully. I mean, worst case scenario, your house collapses. It's very rare with wood frame houses, um, single mm-hmm. story family homes, more common with like soft story apartment buildings and stuff. Yeah, I was wondering. So the Northridge quake, which was 25 years ago, that was 6.7 and it caused between 13 and 50 billion dollars in damage, according to Wikipedia. Um, And of course, the Ridgecrest one was 7.1. So if we had that strength hitting someplace like Northridge now, have we done enough in the last 25 years to retrofit that that damage would be significantly decreased or would it still be a cataclysmic event? From what I understand, probably in terms of the freeways, at least Lucy Jones told me that the freeways probably wouldn't collapse because we had a pretty robust program to retrofit those, to fix those up. But other than that, we'd be pretty screwed. I mean, <laughs> our, our pipe, our, our water system is in grave danger. Uh, we still haven't finished the retrofit program for those soft story apartments, which collapsed in Northridge. A soft story meaning... Meaning, so soft story are those apartments that ha- are like multi-story uh, buildings that then have, I, I, they're usually multi-story, that then have uh, kind of like parking under at the first story and they're held up by these like flimsy metal poles. And in Northridge, those poles just like gave out and they just smushed things and people died. Oh. And it was, it's really scary. Um, a lot of those buildings still exist in LA and there's a mandatory retrofit program in place, but a lot of them still have not been fixed. So if you live in one, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in there. I mean, it's like one of the most dangerous places to be in an earthquake. Um, you can't guarantee collapse anywhere, and it really depends on the the you know the soil it's on and everything. But right. uh, I'd be very careful. Um, the other kinds of buildings I wouldn't want to be in are brittle concrete buildings, which we know very well could collapse as well in an earthquake. Um, and those are not. There's no huge retrofit program going on right now for those by the way it was 40 billion in cost for okay. the north earthquake i have a whole like press fact sheet that we put together before we did press for our thing um the big one is going to be 44 times stronger so let's talk about when people mentioned the big one what that means yeah so the big one would be a set in in our scenario that we did it's a 7.8 magnitude earthquake on the southern san andreas fault it's going to break from Bombay Beach at the Salton Sea all the way to Lake Hughes, which is, you know, past Los Angeles, like out mm-hmm. in the desert area. And it's a very compelling scenario because much of the San Andreas Fault in this area is past the average amount of time that we would expect there to be between major slips. That does not mean it's overdue. We don't say overdue. But we do say it's past the average amount of time, so there is a chance that it could go. It could also, in geologic time, a couple hundred years, uh, I maybe a geologist would argue with me, and I'd totally take that. But uh, geologic time, a couple hundred years, not that much time. Yeah. And so 
you know, the risk is very much there and you need to be ready for it at any moment. Um, and I can break down for you kind of like what is going to happen um, in this scenario and where the scenario came from. Would you like me to do that? I would love to hear this scenario played out. Okay. So the 7.8 magnitude quake on the Southern San Andreas, uh, this scenario was laid out by the U.S. Geological Survey um, and Dr. Lucy Jones, who's a seismologist, um, led this study, and it's called the, the ShakeOut, right? And in this scenario, when the fault slips, it's a 200-mile-long portion of the fault, and the energy bursts northwards from the Salton Sea towards Los Angeles. And when the waves travel, so imagine, like, if you're in Palm Springs or near the Salton Sea and this thing slips, you're just getting violent, terrible shaking very quickly. Just everything's thrown around. Buildings maybe are collapsing if they haven't been retrofitted. Uh, you know, it's it's chaos. I mean, you're not able to stand. You definitely can't run. And then the waves start to travel further north. By the time it hits the mountains between the desert and Los Angeles, it basically passes through the mountains because they're pretty hard. It runs into the L.A. basin, uh, which amplifies it, like, which is amplified by the jello-like consistency of the, actually, L.A. and San Gabriel basins because they it has to do with the sediment in the area. Does that mean as, as a quake would travel through mountains, by contrast, it would be deadened more than if it's traveling across that basin that's amplifying it because of its shakiness its instability sort of or my understanding is that specifically for these mountains and i'm not saying all mountains everywhere but specifically for these mountains between los angeles and the desert and so i guess it would be the san gabriel mountains Mm -hmm. the waves it'll shake but the waves will largely pass will pass through and it'll get kind of caught in the la basin and it will, they will basically reverberate in the L.A. basin and turn the whole thing into a bowl of jello where oh, they kind of like the, the shaking kind of bounces back and forth. I could sort of picture a water analogy of that, like standing waves kind of in that valley between those. Yeah. So that's my understanding. What's really interesting is that like in all the places along the fault, um, we have all these. We have a lot of roads that cross over the fault. I think the only roads that will not be impacted by it in a worst case scenario like this. This actually isn't worst case, by the way. Um, <laughs> see, I did this very. I did this. I think much more eloquently in our podcast, and that we. And I also haven't thought about this in like quite a long time in this detail. But um, and we could link to that for our listeners, by the way. So. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and so what are the implications of this? And so when the shake, by the time the shaking stopped, you have all these roads that it crossed over the San Andreas fault. Well, those roads have experienced probably an offset of between six and 23 feet. Oh my God. And in like opposite directions and they're just severed. Well, turns out we have a lot of lifelines and water and gas and stuff like that up in the mountains too, that cross over that fault. And those will be severed as well. Uh, down in Los Angeles, so we won't be able to get trucks in and out. The port will probably be fine, but we'll have trouble shipping things out of Los Angeles. So the port, they'll probably um, defer shipments to Los Angeles port, which might have a big economic impact. We have to kind of see what, see how that shakes out. Uh, you're going to have collapsed buildings all over the place on like the micro level. You're going to have fires breaking out. Um 
firefighters will not stop to help people, at least initially, unless it's a very clear, like life and death situation, um, because what they're doing is they're surveying the damage. Same thing with policemen Mm -hmm. and ambulance, whatever ambulance are zooming around. And they're surveying the damage because they're going to be so overwhelmed by just how fucked up it is that (laughs) they have to request help from outside sources. Well, it's going to take while everyone like all these fire departments and whatnot will mobilize um, and try to get in as soon as fast as possible. Consider the size of the region that's just been damaged. It's going to take between four, probably between 48 and 72 hours. And that's optimistic for outside resources to get in. So people will largely be on their own for the first couple of days. The people that you will need to rely on in that event are the people that are next to you, are your neighbors, are your friends. And this mm-hmm. is why we get ready. We get ready so that we can help ourselves and we can help others because we are not going to be able to get to the hospital. If we do, it will likely be overwhelmed. There's a lot of hospitals in California that are not seismically safe, that I have not qualified to like Northridge level and much less on level. And they won't by 20 until 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, if, and that deadline, by the way, has been pushed back a bunch. So it works. <laughs> the reason that, and the reason for that is it's very, very expensive, especially for like rural hospitals. So people out in the middle of rural areas are really going to suffer. People in the cities will probably get help fairly quickly, I would imagine, um, because they're going to prioritize those areas. You know, within the first 24 hours, like Red Cross uh, will probably set up like some tents and start handing out water and stuff. But the real shipments of supplies to the region aren't going to come in for a little while, for at least a few days. Um, Again, this is all a scenario. It's all theoretical. This is what the USGS put together in their report. Um, This was 10 years ago. We went through and checked with as many people as we could to make sure that that it was still accurate. And for the most part, and this was kind kind of crappy, for the most part, all of it was still very accurate, even a decade later after this very alarming report came out. Right. So, I mean, there were a couple things here and there that that were different, but, I, you know, not not anything substantial. And so while all these fires are breaking out and entire neighborhoods are burning down and people are without water, they're without the ability to pay for food. So food's probably being given away. Stores will be probably be free of food within the first couple of days not because people i don't like to say looting people need to survive in situations like stores have insurance uh the california grocers association seems to be fairly encouraging of people being like fed and taken care of and they're also going to try their hardest to like bring in supplies as quickly as possible and get supermarkets back online that said do you want to wait in line at a water tent for four hours i personally don't I hate waiting in lines. That's why I have a supply of water that should last us two and a half weeks for my family, not for other people, just for my family. Two and a half weeks, which is how much water? It's a gallon per person per day. We have three people in our family currently, a toddler. So maybe a little, he probably would drink a little less, but that includes cooking. It doesn't include bathing. We have a pool. Um, We could probably get away with it for a couple, you know, I don't know, maybe a week probably a good amount of chlorine in there i don't know if you really <laughs> kind of drive that your skin uh but you know we can't drink that water but we could possibly use it to like rinse off 
Um, you cannot drink pool water. Please don't drink pool water. Uh, I hope our listeners know that if they don't, yeah, take heed. (laughs) I I mean, I don't, someone asked me about the Berkey filters, if they can filter pool water and I am unclear, but I am not going to endorse any product because I don't really know it well enough and you can contact them independently. Mm -hmm. Um, so after immediately, like I said, the people around you are going to be the ones that are going to be helping you. Um, there's gonna be a lot of people, like half of the people that die in this scenario are killed by fire. Uh, there's going to be people trapped in buildings that no one's helping, can't get to, that will die in 24 to 48 hours because of dehydration. Um, it's not one of the number of ways people die when they're trapped. I was looking at the FEMA checklist that you linked to in one of your articles about preparedness. And um, by the way, we will link to your article about your preparedness, the FEMA kit. I'll link to your Amazon list of supplies that you have at the ready. But looking through the FEMA one, I was surprised uh, if you're trapped under debris, it says uh, shout only as a last resort because shouting can cause you to inhale dangerous amounts of dust, which I wouldn't have thought of. But uh, tap on a piper wall so rescuers can find you. You also want to save your energy. I mean, if you're going to be trapped, um, it's always good to keep water at your desk if you happen to be trapped under your desk. If you are in that fortunate enough situation, I guess, where you're like saved by your desk um, in a collapsing building, like, great. Uh, I hope you, you know, I hope you're okay. Uh, (laughs) There is a chance, and this is one of the most alarming things we learned was is that uh there are skyscrapers that could collapse so we could see there's a class of very tall buildings in los angeles and in san francisco as well um that we know are at risk of collapse in a major major event um you could see several come down across the region and that would mean seeing a like 50 story tall building possibly uh, depending on which one it is, come down. And I mean, I don't know what the psychological impact of that is um, ah. or, or the societal impact or the personal impact, but it sounds right. absolutely. Uh, but even so, scarier, like I said, are the fires. But yeah. The fire is scarier than that. But right now, when new skyscrapers are built downtown, are they rated to withstand X on the Richter scale? Like, are the, uh, is it sort of said that these can uh, will stand up to a 7.5 or an 8 or something? Or is it just kind of like we do the best we can with our technology and we'll see what happens the next time? Your building, codes are on, your building codes are only as good as your last earthquake. A lot of these buildings haven't been updated or, or were built uh, back in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, especially in downtown L.A., You know, there's the new Wilshire Graham building in downtown, and that is, you know, the LA Times did some really good coverage on on how that thing was built, and it it seems fascinating. But no structural engineer anywhere will tell you that you build an earthquake-proof building. Yeah, it seems impossible to say that. And if they do, I have about 5,000 structural engineers who I could point you to who will tell you that that's not the case. Given that, and the fact that you cover this, does are you more reluctant to spend time in tall buildings in Southern California, or is this just kind of like, you know, we, we take risks every day, that sort of thing? I'm more likely to be killed riding my bicycle or driving my car um, than I am in an earthquake. The good news about an earthquake is that you can prepare and you can put yourself in a favorable situation. And if, say, you're at your office, you can make sure that you have uh, extra supplies. You can make sure that you guys have an evacuation plan. You can talk to the people that own the building. 
which I've encouraged some people to do because they found out they were in some of these welded steel, big, humongous buildings, and they've done that. Hey, Andy, guess where I am right now? Where are you, Matt? I, I'm in Denmark, which is a different continent from where you are, but we're connected by the magic of the internet. I never thought I'd see the day. Yeah, the internet can do all sorts of things. You know what else it can do? What could it do, Matt? It could do learning. <laughs> learning on the internet? Yeah, imagine that. Uh, you know how on our podcast we go through science stories and then we go, ah, we don't know the re- we don't understand this. Uh, we need an expert. Wouldn't it be useful if there were experts on the internet who we could readily access? That would be nice. We we do do a bit of hand waving, don't we? We do, but you know what? Uh, the people from the Great Courses Plus have reached out to us. Are you aware of the Great Courses Plus, Andy? I am now, Matt. Well, why don't you tell me a bit about it? <laughs> well, I have been availing myself of the really interesting lectures that are available to you on the Great Courses Plus. It's a priceless source of knowledge in just about any field. They stream thousands of lectures on subjects ranging from engineering to martial arts to photography. I've been watching the Introduction to Astrophysics, which is great. It's taught at a college level. Okay, okay but hold tight, Andy. Presumably, it's, the, it's an internet thing. These lecturers are just like people giving it a go. They don't have any level of real expertise. <laughs> you might think that, but no, these are actually uh, very highly acclaimed <laughs> experts in their fields. The what, you mean experts <laughs> from like who teach at top universities? Professors and the like? Yes, a Princeton astrophysicist in particular who's teaching the class that I'm watching uh, right now in astrophysics. And it's it's great. Obviously, we've had guests on who have discussed that subject on the podcast, and I've read their popular science books, but um, none of that gets into the level of depth that these do, which are taught at a college level. Um, they get pe- people back up to speed on things like logarithms and vectors and Coulomb's Law and stuff like that that you'll need to understand the lectures, but it's still approachable. Very deep dive, interesting. Wow, so- um so this sounds like the kind of thing that would be good for someone who just wants to know more about a subject, whether it's science or anything anything academic, or also someone who is studying that and wants to brush up on some specifics, or maybe their teacher isn't that good, or just someone who wants to dabble one course at a time in an interesting topic. That's what I've been doing. Yeah, I've been jumping around. There are so many lectures to choose from, and you can listen. Well, well on... you have to pay individually for each separate lecture, though, right, Andy? You you don't. It's one subscription. What? what, what? You... <laughs> so hang on a second. This one subscription gives you access to all these lectures from top professionals who have also. I mean, if if they're experts in the field, they're probably not that good at teaching as well as. No, the subject, they're chosen. Right? They're chosen for their teaching acumen and for their accessibility. It's it's a really astoundingly, astoundingly deep and uh, and wide amount of knowledge available to anybody for just one low monthly subscription. And if you sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably, you'll get a free month to access anything in this Great Courses Plus. So any of these. Okay. Hundreds. Okay, but hang, hang on a second, Andy. Wait, 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 one more thing. So you, to access this, you presumably have to go down to like a library or something or like look, buy a special computer that you can use to access this. I can see why you'd think that, yes. But no, in fact, you can do this uh, online. You can go to thegreatcoursesplus.com and watch it on your laptop or computer. You can do it via their mobile app, in which case you can switch back and forth between uh, audio and video. 
and listen in the car. Then when you get home, listen, watch again on video. Or you can do as I did and uh, get the Great Courses Plus app going on your set-top box. For me, I'm using a Fire TV. So I'm just watching it like I would watch TV, but I have access to these thousands of courses. So you could be listening to it like a podcast and then get home and pick up exactly where you left up on your Fire TV or Apple TV or Roku or whatever? That is true, yep. You can stream it pretty much anywhere you can stream things at all. God, you'd have to be an idiot not to sign up to this. For a free month, I, this right up our listeners' alley. I can't see why anybody wouldn't give it a shot and see. This really is. Like, piss, piss taking aside, we're very happy and excited about this sponsor. This, this is really cool. If you like it when we do deep dives in subjects, this is your perfect chance to just pick and choose. And like I say, anything academic or non-academic, they've got subjects like photography and things like that, of art. Uh, but the introduction to astrophysics is the one that we've had a look at recently because, you know, we you know we love our astrophysics. We love when astrophysicists come on the show. And this is, of course, taught by a Princeton lecturer who's really good. Yeah, and it's great having the visual component to add to the what you've already heard and read because, like, the first episode does a great... Um, slow zoom in and out from the molecular level to the universe level and gives you a great sense of the relative size gaps and all these different things that helps with an actual visual so that helps like solidify some concepts that i wasn't aware of but didn't quite have like a intuitive grasp over you know so how do how do our listeners sign up to this andy they can go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably and get a free month of access to all of these courses Listeners, please, please do this. You will not regret it. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. You will get a free month as well. Check it out. But yeah, man, you just got to live your life. At the same time, you don't have to live your life in ignorance because that's certainly not going to help you. And I don't really want to have to take care of people who could have been prepared and could be helping others that, you know, are caught out in some strange way that need help. You know, like if you can help yourself, you need to help yourself. It's very selfish if you don't. That's a very good point. Yeah. And and I guess also a good reason to be in touch with your neighbors and know who lives around you so you guys can rely on each other when this happens. Yeah. And there's situations and like, you know, there's there's exceptions to every rule, right? If there are people that are impaired in any way, have disabilities or mobility issues, um, you know, you need to coordinate with them or they need to coordinate with you if they're family members, friends or neighbors to make sure that everyone gets checked on, that everyone knows where all the extra supplies are, especially if you have certain needs that that need to be met. Um, yeah, there's just there's a there. The only thing that's going to happen by you not preparing is not like the earthquakes is still going to happen. It's just going to put you in a crappy situation when something does happen so that other people are going to have to take care of you. And in my opinion, uh, it, like I said, it's kind of selfish. The exceptions being if you do need help, like I think that's totally reasonable and you need to coordinate with your neighbors and your loved ones and all that, all that sort of stuff to make sure that everyone has kind of a game plan when something like this happens. And again, you have what sort of container do you have this multi-week water supply in at your house? I was just sitting in my garage. I have individual. Yeah. So like I, I, I was like freaking out about like how am I not going to store it in plastic, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And then I was like, you know what? This is so stupid. If I don't have any water for two and a half weeks for my family, do I give a crap if plastic has leached into it? <laughs> no, I point. do not. Like it doesn't matter. And it was, I was trying to figure out like all these like 
can I store it in like glass? And how do I keep the glass from breaking? It's like, no, eventually I just went to smart and final. I spent like 58 bucks and I got like two, two and a half weeks worth of water. And that was that. And all of a sudden, like I'm prepped for at least that aspect. There are other aspects I'm not, and I need to keep working on, but, and there are certain parts of it. Like you can take it to the nth degree, right? You could build, you could build a structurally sound bunker uh, in your backyard. We didn't do that. You could take it to, you could buy a gen, like realistically though, you could spend thousands on a generator, which I would love to do. I just don't have that kind of money. Um, but at the most basic, just water and food and make sure you have some extra medical supplies. And if you don't think you're going to want to sleep in your house with aftershocks, shaking it and all that kind of stuff, have a tent and some sleeping bags. You can pick them up for under a hundred bucks at like big five or one of those or Walmart or something like that. And, um, you just need, you need the basics to get you through a couple weeks so that everything can kind of start to settle. And you mentioned that you bought a lot of your things at military surplus stores, which were even cheaper than Amazon, which is a great tip. Amazon was way overpriced. Amazon, I, I bought some stuff off Amazon kind of out of necessity, um, just cause I needed to get the project done for the podcast, but the military surplus stores, I kind of went bananas, uh, in one of them and came across some really, really great stuff. I, I mean, I bought like wool blankets for $7. I mean, uh. it's like, how do you, you can't beat that on Amazon. I bought, I bought like, um, bags for the car and bags for each closet in the house and like places to stash fire extinguishers and crowbars. And like, I have stuff sprinkled around our house now in these like bags that I bought for 10 bucks a piece at this military surplus store that it's just like tools to be able to get out of the room or get out of the house or kind of, you know, emergency supplies in case something bad does happen, uh, in the home after the earthquake, like a fire or, uh, you know, something collapses or something like that. Right. Right. And as I mentioned, we'll link in the show notes to, um, the article you wrote about you're preparing for this and to your your shopping list, which as I'm looking at it, I'm seeing, um, yeah, work gloves, glow sticks, um, particulate matter masks. Uh, it's surprisingly similar to a Burning Man packing list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the other thing about this is that a lot of if you're a big backpacker or camper or something, you're going to have the majority of this stuff. Um, uh, if you're, if you're going backpacking all the time and you have a lot of backpacking meals, they're really expensive. So I didn't go out and buy a whole lot of them for my house. Like then you're going to use those. My ultimate setup that I'm, I'm aiming for is a solar power generator, which will cost us probably maybe two to $5,000, depending on what the setup is of which we don't have to spend on that yet, but I would love to at some point. Um, and then with that generator, we'll be able to run things like our instant pot and a hot plate and things so that we could cook like rice and beans and some vegetables. And I have a pretty robust garden that is always growing stuff. So like, you know, pull some stuff from the garden and kind of use that and add it to And we have like, you know, spices and all that you already have in your cabinet. Um, yeah. And also it would be good if we had, we do have extra propane our, our stove is hooked up to a gas line but we have propane as like a backup in case obviously something right. happens what are the biggest misconceptions about earthquake preparedness like I, I think we've talked in the past on our podcast about um this thing that i believe is a myth uh, uh, like one of the safe areas to aim for being this uh, mythical triangle of safety like if you were next to your bed but on the floor with the thinking that some kind of beam would 
fall and form the hypotenuse of, of the floor and your bed, but that's sort of like firing at a target and then looking at all the places where bullets didn't go and saying those are the safe places to be or something. You know, it's like after the fact, looking at where something didn't fall and then claiming that would have been the smart place to be. Is that a thing that's been debunked completely, that sort of triangle theory of... I think so, yeah. 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 100%. I mean, you sound like you covered it. I mean, don't do <laughs> Duck cover and hold on. And then duck also, in addition to duck cover and hold on, my thing that we got into an argument like with a friend and on, on the podcast over is I don't think people need guns. I like guns, personally. I don't know, you know, uh, if within context of hunting or sport shooting like i have no problem with guns i don't own one but yeah. i have no problem with them when it comes to owning one for an emergency situation i don't agree with that i don't think that i think that your gun is going to um i think when you play out the scenarios of what you might use it for the science the social science shows that people are generally very good after disasters that mm-hmm. people want to help each other, that people are going to, that the normal, your neighbors and normal folks on the street are going to be the ones that help you and you help them. Like that's, that's really great. And 11 days in or so when people start to get uncomfortable, that's when people start to get kind of edgy. But, you know, as far as I know, there haven't been any for, for natural disasters, there have not been like major crime sprees or have not been major, uh, major humongous issues that you need a weapon for to stand on your roof and, and shoot down. And a lot of people say, point out the riots, the riots were not a natural disaster. Um, it's a different situation. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very, it's complicated and deep and we're talking about something completely different than an earthquake. Um, my friend thinks that you need a gun because if you're not prepping for yourself, you're prepping for your neighbor. If you're not, if you don't have a gun, prepping for your neighbor or whatever, which is, which is fine. You know, if that's the headspace he wants to live in, but I'm curious when you take it to a point of like, okay, at what point am I going to use this weapon? Someone comes up to me, they say, give me your pasta, give me your car. (laughs) And like, at what point do you shoot them? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think you're much more likely to shoot someone who probably didn't deserve to be shot and all of a sudden you're charged with murder and uh and you have to live with knowing you killed somebody right yeah and you've ruined many lives and all this kind of stuff that said there are people who will vehemently disagree with me and i'm sure will absolutely uh say that guns for self-defense in the event of a disaster are necessary i i just don't necessarily agree like i said no problem with guns i just don't necessarily agree with that exact use case yeah, I, I think there have been enough studies that show when you have a gun, you perceive guns elsewhere. Like you think that people are holding guns when you're holding a gun. So it just escalates everything and makes you think that everyone else is has an itchy trigger finger just because you are in possession of one. So if everyone follows that rule, it's going to be a much more violent post-quake world, I think. Yeah, and all those reports after like Katrina of guns, for instance, were not real. Like, oh, I hadn't even heard what the reports were. There was this there was this idea, this post Katrina crime wave, and it turns out that it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. I mean, yeah, I, I want to believe that when everybody is is pushed to the limit that they'll choose to come together. I don't think it's a crazy thing to think could happen. If you're worried about looting, like in my opinion, and the opinion of certain LAPD and fire folks that we talked to, 
um, while no one will endorse like the idea of stealing stuff, like if people need supplies after a disaster, uh, they should, they're, maybe they should have access to supplies, especially if things are bad enough where systems and stations haven't been set up yet. Like people need to survive. And I, I do not uh, turn my nose up at anyone who decides that they need to go and go and get diapers and food and stuff like that to make it through some days, especially after an earthquake hits. Yeah. The alternative would be, would be gross to endorse to say that you should go hungry because of this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And, I, and I'm with you on the, the, your logic is airtight for why you should prepare because it's selfish not to, and someone else will take care of you if you don't in a bad way. And I hadn't thought of that logic. And I've, I guess I've also just been kind of lazy, but like, I don't want to be a burden on the rest of the city and on my neighbors in this moment of need, you know? I hope I emphasize enough that asking for help and getting help, you are not a burden, but if you had an opportunity to prepare in any way at all and you actively chose not to, in my opinion, that's selfish. If you have monetary restraints, uh, if you have like, you know, physical restraints or whatever, anything like that, I get that. If you don't have space for any of this stuff, I totally get that too. And I know ill will towards anyone and I, I get there are exceptions, but just mm-hmm. as there are exceptions to that, there are as many people out there who can go buy a week's worth of water at the supermarket, who can go buy some canned food, who can make sure they have extra medicine or have their papers in place, who can make sure they have some like kits. You know, it doesn't need to be really expensive and, and investing some of your money in those things will help you immensely after the earthquake. I'm not saying you need to build an entire shelter and be a pressure right. and stuff. Talking like bare minimum, you need to help yourself so that you can also help others. That's great advice. Yeah, I at the very least, I have no excuse not to go just buy a huge amount of water because that's, I'm going to drink it eventually anyway. <laughs> Why not just have it? Yeah. Uh, are there any other pieces of advice you want to give our listeners in this post, post and pre-quake world we're living in right now? Yeah, they should listen to the podcast. I mean, if they're not really curious about how dark things could get and all the the difficult decisions that they might face, and if they're not curious how earthquakes tend to exacerbate racial disparities um, in society and especially in Los Angeles, and if they're not interested in how skyscrapers could collapse uh, in the story, like intense journalism we did around that, um, I'd say just listen to 7, 8, and 9 and you'll get a pretty good idea. I would listen to one, seven, eight, and nine. You should listen to the whole thing, but one, seven, eight, and nine, if you're just interested in prepping and want to get a taste of what things are like. But in the other episodes, we dive deep into the different decisions that you'd have to make. We dive deep into the history of these te- of the tectonic plates um, and wh- you know where these things, how we can guarantee that these things are coming, these big earthquakes are coming, um, and how we really only understood that the San Andreas was a major major threat since about the 1980s like we knew there were major quakes on it and it was discovered mm-hmm. in the early 1900s um that said in paleo seismology uh radiocarbon dating of the various layers you know they like trench faults excuse me they dig trenches across the faults and then they go down like paleo seismologists actually go down into the faults and look at the layers almost like a layer cake inside the fault like mm-hmm. that crosses the fault and they can actually see breaks in those layers. And then they radiocarbon date those breaks, like those areas. And then they can tell uh, when or big earthquakes happen. That system's only been about since the 70s and 80s. 
So people have heard that the big one is coming for probably 30 years now or so. Um, it is. And, you know, you could be snooty about it or you can go get ready and realize that, you know, there is some stuff you could do about it, especially if you invest a little money. And uh, if you don't have that money, there are resources out there for you. And FEMA has a lot of suggestions and there are assistance programs. So go check those out. That is great. And I will link to all of that in the show notes for this episode. And then also, how many more minor quakes before my rent gets to go down finally? Is any of this going to be helpful in the I'm short waiting term? For the housing, I'm waiting for the housing market to soften so I can finally afford to buy a house. And I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. But if it does, you know, maybe if you see that first, let me know. Oh, man, that would be the, the sole upside to this. I mean, I guess the downside is that people, yeah, it's not going to happen. I think even after a major quake, I bet that the region will retain a lot of its value. I'm not an economist. I don't know anything. I'm totally out of school speaking about this, but I just cannot imagine. There might be a little dip, but I don't know. I think people are going to want to keep living here. It is pretty crazy how quickly everybody forgot. And true, it didn't. The epicenter was 100 miles away, but you know, two days in a row, significant shaking for more than a minute, and a week later, everyone's kind of back to business as usual. Yeah, I but mean, what else I can mean, you do though? You know. Yeah. What are you going to do? You're going to sit around and then be scared all day. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily healthy either. You can be proactive. You know, it, it's kind of like, um, I find climate change to be a lot scarier than earthquakes um, because it is a very clear impending and a disaster that we're currently dealing with. Um, and I don't, I mean, I just, I don't think there is strong collective action, at least with earthquakes. You don't really need humongous collective action, although I wish it would happen. Uh, mm -hmm. And you should debate that if you can. You really need to prepare for yourself and your family and have some extra stuff if you can help your neighbors and all that kind of stuff. But um, I'm more optimistic about our preparation for quakes than I am for climate change. So, yeah, there's a chance we'll, we'll get through our entire lives without without a big the big one hitting. But if we don't do something about climate change, that's definitely coming our way in the next few decades. So, yeah, it's here. It's here already. So, yeah. I wish we could end on a non-downer note, but like, uh, I guess the non-downer oh, is just man, that you can prepare. Uh, and... I can, yeah, I'll end on the non-downer note. Um, uh, okay, this is the non-downer note from our entire podcast. I think it is unbelievably inspiring that people's immediate reaction after a big disaster is to help one another. You might not think that's the case, and I doubted that, and my producers brought it to me. The producers that I worked with brought it to me. And they, I didn't believe that. And like all the social scientists and stuff I talked to said that's the case. I'm like, who am I to doubt a bunch of social scientists? And, and that's really cool. Like, that's really freaking cool because in our daily lives, we don't necessarily interact with people all the time in a really positive way, like strangers. And the fact that people want to help each other and are there like digging each other out of rubble or running around like distributing aid or, sharing their water, like that to me is a really beautiful part of humanity. Um, I guess the bummer part, God, I always have to end on a bummer note, I guess, <laughs> is that we don't do that more often in our daily lives. It'll end on a hokey note. Um, but I am I am optimistic to see that one disaster as we do. I, I love it. Um, listen to the big one. We'll link to that and to your prepping list and the FEMA checklist so you can be prepared when this comes, if it comes. Um, Jacob Borgolis, thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye.